0: Um, we we finished the parables in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' parables, and we're gonna start. Look, there's more. They're coming. So you just keep standing there, Dwayne. They'll come. It's like the the uh, Baptist church I grew up. They keep singing the last verse till people come forward, <laughs> over and over. Just one more time. You see that hand in the back? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we are gonna stay here till someone comes down. Anybody have that experience? Um, I, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, we finished the parables in Luke. We're going to do Luke part two, which is the book of Acts coming up in two weeks. So Acts is a big book. So we're going to take a little break here for two weeks, decided to do a little mini series in the middle on the book of Jude. So we did the parables and the parables, we said, Jesus is King and he's telling stories uh, to reorient us to the way of the kingdom. He's going to show us a new way to live. He's going to flip the world upside down, and we're disoriented, as the disciples are, trying to figure out, what does it mean to live under a new king in a new kingdom? And then Acts is going to take the early church and show us how this new kingdom lives out in action. What does it look like? What it, how does it bear fruit? What's the motion of the kingdom? Before we go from one big series to another big series, I thought we'd take a break and do a little bit of mini-series in the middle. Jude is one chapter, and... One of the things that's probably been underdeveloped in my own uh, theology over the years, something that as people like us that love grace, we love talking about grace, we love singing about grace, uh, is this idea that grace comes with opposition, that we live in a world uh, of false teaching. We live in a world where there are those seeking to distort and to deceive, and so uh, we're going to talk about this idea of false teaching. Much of the latter half of the New Testament, think about 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 2 Peter, Jude, parts of Revelation, are all dealing very seriously, very sternly with the idea of false teaching. And yet often it doesn't get worked into our world. So as we're a young church, a new church being planted, going on mission, we need to know we're going on mission and it's going to be great and We'll talk about Acts, and we devote ourselves to the apostles' t- teaching and the breaking of bread and kumbaya, and that's great. But we go forth with resistance, both from inside and from outside, of false teaching in the world. And so we're going to look at that for two weeks. hence the pleasant reading you long gave us as we looked at the early verses there uh, in Jude. So that's what we're going to do. We'll look at false teaching this week. Uh, be more on the the presence of that, the reality, the challenge. And next week we'll look at. What's the positive? How do we contend uh, for the faith? Jude is a little book. Uh, it says in the introduction that is he is the brother of James, and that James is the brother of Jesus. So Jude is the brother of Jesus himself, had been with Jesus, raised with Jesus, knows Jesus. If you notice, uh, the lot of Old Testament uh, illustrations, examples, So he's written probably for a largely Jewish audience as he's telling these stories and recounting um, the nature of the Old Testament. What is the purpose? It says in verse 3, it says that, um, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I want to talk about Acts, he says, right? But I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith, the faith, he said, that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend means to struggle for, to fight for. It comes with difficulty. It's not we just have the faith and it's great. We have to fight and wrestle and struggle with it. And here it says the faith. So it's not faith um, in sort of generic sense. It's not faith in kind of the, you know, the faith, we often get in the South, kind of the, the big guy in the sky kind of faith, you know. The kind of the pray before the football game kind of faith, you know. Where everybody just kind of says words because you're supposed to do that. It's talking about the faith, meaning the particulars of a historic faith with Jesus. There's a father, there's a son, there's a spirit, there's particularities to it. You know, we talk about it in the Apostles' Creed, we do it every week. That kind of faith, faith that has content and substance. We have to contend for that faith because those particulars are attacked, false teaching comes in to distort and to change, and we've got to hold fast and fight for the faith, it says. It says, but why are we needing to fight for it? We are to contend for it because of verse 4. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and the Lord Jesus Christ, we contend because there's opposition, there's an enemy. There is an adversary to the Lord. Do, do you know that? Um, do you know the world is not, in a sense, neutral? It's this... Jesus, you're for us, or you're against us. There are common blessings we all experience, like the the sun shines, right, on the godly and the ungodly, and it rains on the godly and the ungodly. God gives common grace to those that know Christ and that don't know Christ. You know, my mechanic may not be a Christian, but he's got gifts and abilities to fix my car, and I'm thankful for that. There are graces, and yet the world is not neutral. It is either for Christ or it is set against him, And so we need to know that there is both the presence of goodness and the presence of evil in the world. So we'll look at this first today. We'll look at these challenges to our faith, these certain people that have crept in. And then next week we'll focus on the positive side of the contending for our faith. Um, The first thing we see, um, very obvious and clearly, is the presence of, of false teaching. The presence of false... I actually put some slides uh, together too. Um, there we go. Go to the next... There we go. Presence of false teaching. How about that? Um, uh, so the, the presence of false teaching. Verse four, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Crept in It's the idea that they they were sneaky, right? They, they came from the outside and they came from the inside. They worked their way in. Sometimes... Uh, uh, false teaching comes from the inside. You know, you may know churches where the, 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 the ministries are teaching, it, it starts in a good place, and somewhere within the church, it's changed. Maybe the pastor starts teaching something false, and it kind of tickles the ears of people, and it, it distorts, right? It changes. There's a, they move into uh, uh, heresy, or they move away from the truth of the faith, or they, they start teaching universalism, or they start teaching something, uh, moving away from the Word of God. It's, it's an inside job. Uh, but sometimes like this there's actually things from the outside that make their way inside in sort of a covert mission to distort to to ambush the idea of crept in it speaks it's it reminds us of uh, the enemy the Satan the, the father of lies who just de- who deceives he distorts and he's it's not all that different, but it's a half truth that works its way in and changes. Do you see the part on the people? The people of God. Their part is that these people crept in unnoticed, unnoticed. Um. So there's a a, a warning to us to be alert, to be on guard. Are, are we apathetic? Are we paying attention? Are we listening? Are we are we taking things in? Are like the Bereans and Acts that heard the word being preached, and they examined it with other scripture to see if it was true, or do we just take it in and assume it's right? Remember the famous uh, myth, uh, they sailed in, and they got this big statue outside the gates, and the men of Troy were ready, but then they saw the Greeks sail off, and as the Greeks sailed off, they said, oh, it's a sign of victory, we've won, and they opened their gates up, and the the Trojan Horse was wheeled into the city, to the middle of the city, and then at night, it became dark. From inside the Trojan Horse, soldiers came out, Greek soldiers, and they unlocked the gates. And the Greeks that had sailed away turned around, right at nighttime, and they came back and they poured in through the open gates from the outside. They came in and they sacked the city, the city of Troy people of Troy were apathetic. They were not on guard. and It snuck in and it took hold of them. This can be true for us. Um, there are the big issues. We see uh, big, big struggles, big things. We can see, we can identify them, but often those are easy. Um but it's often more subtle things. You know, I get, uh, probably Ryan does, probably some of the elders do, I get asked all the time by people in the church, hey, have you ever heard of this podcast? Have you ever listened to this YouTube? Have you ever heard of this? Have you ever talked about this? And, and so I'll try to listen to them, and sometimes they're really good, and, um, and a lot of times they're really, really, really bad. And you look and you see all the followers, and you see people passing them around, and with our information age, right, I mean, we can get to anything, and everyone is a... Uh, uh, Expert, everyone can have their own YouTube channel, become an expert, um, and you get all these things passed on, and, pro- and they're not all that good to the Word of God. We were with, uh, a few of us were at our, our pastor's Presbyterian retreat Monday and Tuesday, and one of the uh, speaker, a guy named Richard Pratt, who's pretty well-known, great speaker, he said uh, his, his whole ministry is about getting theological, rich theological education to the rest of the world mainly Africa and Asia, more Christians today. The typical Christian today is is African, right? He's in the Southern Hemisphere and is black. He's not like us um, in in terms of numbers. Um, And so his whole thing is we've got to get good education to these places. He He says, I'm doing it because your grandkids here will one day be evangelized by African missionaries to the United States, is what he said. And so he said, we've got to give them good theology because the gospel's taking root and exploding in Africa and China, but it's exploding with what? Often really, really, really bad teaching. Prosperity, health, wealth type theology. It's taking root, it's expanding, it's growing, it's multiplying. They're hungry, they have no filter, they have no understanding of what is good and what is not good. We need to contend, be on guard for the faith, how many televangelists? You know, little old ladies in their living room sending money to scam on TV, right? It's prevalent. It's prevalent in blogs. It's prevalent. I mean, social media. We follow. We need to do it with discerning eye, and we need to do it. We need to do it with with uh, 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 with awareness. We need to do it. We need to do theology and community. That's why we talk about things. You know, there, uh There are some counseling movements today. Um, There's great counselors. Obviously, I'm pro-counseling. But there's some really, really, really unhealthy counseling movements that have not been tethered to good theology. It's taken twists and turns and taken people down really unhealthy patterns. And So we've got to do theology. We've got to be aware of false teaching in our presence and do this in community. Second thing, there's the presence of false teaching, but there's also look at the nature of false teaching. Verse four says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How is the faith being challenged and corrupted? Two ways. One, they perverted the grace of of God, says into sensuality. What does it mean to pervert? Pervert means to change or to alter. Um, you know, the antidote to, to perversion or sexual perversion is not no sexuality, right? It's not asexuality. It's, it's It's healthy sexuality. It's a good thing. That's the very nature of what sin does. Sin, uh, I want you to have a really low view of what sin is. I want you to think poorly of sin. Sin is not original. Did you know that? Sin's not creative. Sin can't initiate. Sin is a parasitic nature. It's, it takes the goodness of God that God has created, and it attaches itself like a parasite does and lives off the host, the goodness of God, and it leeches, and it derives life, and it takes something God made that is good, and it seeks to distort to try to persuade. Copycat. It's it's recycled. And so there are ways that the grace of God has been perverted. This word sensuality is a word that means a lack of self-constraint or an immoral, immoral behavior. There's no there's no boundaries. Um there's no limit. So we, we hear grace, and we're free, and we're forgiven, and we're justified. We're right before God. And so what? The, the, error, the error is we move to licentiousness. We can do what we want. We're free. We're not bound. Don't bring that condemnation on me. I'm free. I'm free to live how I want to live, right? I'm free in Jesus. This was true in Paul's day. As Paul preached, they would say, What? If grace is true, can we just sin as much as we want? Can we do whatever we want? If it's all grace, this is great. I love this grace theology. No. We can't pervert the grace of God. The grace of God is to compel us, to control us towards godliness and goodness. Tonight is a perfect example of this. We have the Super Bowl, and we have the notorious halftime show, right? Right? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm really not, you know, curmudgeon and like puritanical and let's not have any fun. That, that's that's really not. Uh, that's really not me. This is just an easy target. I mean, well, let's 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 ask. Um, did most of you learn about sexuality from your mom and dad over many years of conversation and talking about how to view other people? Anybody? I want to show a hand. Nobody's like, i answer answering that. Right? Where'd you you learn it from locker rooms, and playgrounds, frat houses, the internet. It's a good source, right? We were discipled. We were tra- trained. We were trained about what to love, about how to view women, about how, how to view their bodies, about how, how to view men and how men are supposed to behave and act. We have been discipled and trained. The goodness of God, our bodies, sensuality, that we're to be alive with pleasure in multiple ways, from food to sex to, to touch to all kind of ways, and it's been taken, and we're not supposed to kill all that and have no senses and to shut down. We're to live in a way that God's called it. And you watch the halftime show, and we're discipled and we're trained and we're taught. We teach our little girls. This is how women are supposed to use their bodies and we, we we watch the camera angles you know that start from down here and work their way up and this is how men are supposed to look at them and we're conditioned it's perverting the grace of god perverting the good things god has given he uses the example here of verse 7 of Sodom and Gomorrah the classic classic example here First way, we distort the grace of God. Obedience to God, grace leads to obedience. Do you you presume upon the grace of God? Are you being trained? Are you being discipled by God's grace to love the things God loves? The second thing uh, the false teachers do, they, they pervert the grace of God. The second, they deny the authority of God. It says, deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They've come in. Unnoticed, they've perverted the grace of God into sensuality and sexuality, and then they have denied our only master, Jesus Christ. So apparently the the false teachers, they were not only teaching some kind of lawlessness, some kind of perversion, but they were also denying Jesus and his authority. We just did that in Luke, right? We talked about Luke, and the Pharisees hated his authority. They saw Jesus commanding authority over the elements they saw him commanding authority over all things. He taught with authority, and they hated it. They wanted to topple his authority. You remember when uh, Saddam Hussein was finally removed, captured, removed from power in Iraq? The, they show the picture in Baghdad of, of them pulling down. You remember? Pulling down the Saddam Hussein statue. And throughout Iraq, they're toppling his image, right? His authority has been brought down. He no longer rules and reigns over us. And he's trampled down upon. And that's what Jesus is being sought to be done to Jesus. Let's pull down his authority, his power. They were teaching either Jesus, um, either modeling specifically or teaching specifically that Jesus was irrelevant. That he did not have authority to shape and to command our lives. Verses 6 and 8, he speaks of uh, angels. These are a bunch of illustrations here, and they're complicated, but he says in verse 6, And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, is kept in darkness. So the, the angels, speaks about Lucifer and fallen angels. They could not submit to the authority of God, and so they're cast out. He goes on, he says in verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also... Relying on their own dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. There's a lot there, but there's a, an unwillingness to bend the knee. they rely on their own visions and dreams and manifestations, but they reject the authority of God. they reject the authority of Jesus spoken and clear. It's about authority. you know um, that's a hard one for Americans. You know, we, at this conference, it was really good and challenging, but he made the point, um, you know, how much we love our freedom as Americans, right? We're like, you know, let freedom ring, you know, freedom, freedom, independence, <laughs> we the people, for the people, and, and it was just really good. Dr. Pratt was, uh, you know, we, we're not, we, we uh, Christians, we're not, our religion's not for the people, by the people. Did you know that? We have an absolute monarch. Did you know that? Like, this is not a like, well, what do you guys think we should do? Let's elect officials and this is what we'll do. Jesus is king and he rules and reigns with all authority. Now, good news for us, he's a good king. He's gracious and kind and tender and merciful. But it's not like our opinion is needed to make the decision. There's not a lot of, you know, we're not a lot of anxiety come November. Who's going to be in power? He rules and reigns. He's king. Jesus is king. It's not the American way, and that's a shock to us because we love that value so much, and there's a proper way to think about freedom, of course. Jesus is king. He is the Lord. It says these people have crept in with this idea of denying our Lord. It's not like, um, you know, you're a follower of Jesus, and then you go to your office one day, and Outside your office, someone put a big statue of Buddha, and you're like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, tempted to bow down to Buddha like you never have, like maybe happens in Thailand, right? That's not probably going to happen. Maybe people get lured away to other religions through various philosophies and thoughts, but it's subtle. It creeps in. The, The key word here is denies our only Lord and Savior Jesus, only is the key word. And In and, and the day of the first century, you could have said Jesus is Lord as long as you said Caesar is Lord too, right? He's on the coin. He's Lord. Okay, Jesus, okay. A lot of people have multiple religions. That's not a big deal. Today, if you say Jesus and Muhammad, okay, cool. We're good with that. You could say Jesus in New Age, Jesus in pink unicorns, Jesus in whatever you want to say, and that's fine. But when you say Jesus alone, conversation's over, right? You're a bigot. You're a hater. You're intolerant, right? How unloving of you! How arrogant of you! This is what he says. They've come in. We've been allured. We weren't paying attention, and we're being allured. It's like, well, maybe not. I mean, maybe there's other, maybe there's other options. I mean, you know, it's kind of Jesus is that just American thing, or is that just because I grew up in this household, and if I grew up in you know, in Indonesia, I'd probably be Muslim. So maybe there's multiple, and it just works. And we go through all these things, and not there aren't questions to answer. We got to talk about it, but it's the exclusivity of Jesus is the one and only way. I I told you a story a couple weeks ago about my friend Wayne. He was the, the man I met who came a Christian about a year ago. He was fifty, he was dying of AIDS, and uh, he had come to Christ uh, at forty nine, and he. Uh, he told his family, and his family was Jewish on one side, and the other side, uh, they were secular, and some of them were kind of new age religion. And he said, I, I told him about my conversion, and both sides were so mad. He had come from a, a, a promiscuous homosexual lifestyle to be, to be celibate, uh, to turn from that. And I said, were they, were they mad about your lifestyle change? He said, no, 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 they were mad about Jesus. <laughs> When I said Jesus, the conversation ended. I said, really, the new age people? Yeah, not Jesus. <laughs> the Jewish people, you might can understand that. but Jesus is the stumbling block. He is the one that comes in the way. False teachers are promoting and prompting a movement away from exclusivity of Jesus. Where have we compromised or wavered in our view of Jesus' authority? Do we recognize the temptation? We need to be on guard. Finally, we see the pre- uh, false teachers. We see the nature of false teaching. The, the last part is really the rest of 5 through 16. It's the example of false teaching and then the consequences of it. And I'm not going to be able to go through all of it because it's a lot of text but it's, I want you to get the big picture of it. Um, this is basically the point. This is the history of the world. This is from the garden. Did God really say you couldn't? God's holding out on you, right? The serpent says, you could be like God. It's lies, it's deceit, it's taking the good words of God, and it's distorting them, perverting them. He's not the chief only authority. You can be an authority too. You're pretty special as well. Genesis chapter 3, and it's throughout the Old Testament to this book. It's throughout the last 2,000 years, distorting and changing, and the consequences are judgment. Jesus says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he does that largely through false teaching through ways we are turned aside. If we're going to be a church that's faithful to the gospel, it's going to build a community that's different that we talk about Jesus in a new way and it's it comes alive to us and we're going to we're going to we're going to promote that and try to reproduce that with our coworkers or neighbors and and as we go and love and play T-ball and invite people to our house and, and do all kind of fun things, we're going to know as we do that we're moving into a world that's in opposition to King Jesus, who we have said we bend the knee and bow to as Lord. We need to be on guard. We need to know that is the world we live in. Some examples. Uh, the people uh, that came out of Egypt, verse 5. They came out of Egypt. What do you mean? They were in slavery in Egypt, bound by Pharaoh. This is Exodus, right? God comes, remember the ten plagues, and they're freed. And then what happened in the first, the first generation out of, the, out of Egypt in the wilderness? They didn't believe God. They said it was, it was better back in Egypt. They were, they were in slavery. They were bound. God was feeding them with bread from heaven. It was better there. They were moving the They did not believe. False teaching crept in. That's what it says. It says they were destroyed, those who do not believe. The angels who mentioned them, they were usurping the authority of God. He has kept them in eternal chains until the gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. I don't know what all that means, but it doesn't sound good. Let's not be on that side, right? So this is not just a human thing. This is a divine thing. There's a supernatural world that's at war. That doesn't sound very popular. That's not going to make a lot of, fr- like, you got you medical people, go do your, uh, you, you know, your, uh, what is it, you do your interviews for residency and fly up to, you know, somewhere, Virginia, and, interview the hospital, and they're asking questions, you're like, yeah, i am just been thinking about the supernatural, the demons at work in the world. Like, you're not going to get chosen, right? No one believes that. No one wants it. That's the truth. <laughs> That's the reality. It's, it's supernatural. It's also natural, working its way in through lies and deceit. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, sexual perversion. That's what it says. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities Which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. What's unpopular? Talk about that. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. My goodness. Right? That's just what the text says. Just read it. I didn't even add any commentary. Just read it. It's the history of the world. Verse 8. Yet in like manner. These people also, relying on their own dreams, defile. Goes on and on. 9 and 10, uh, this in, in, interesting thing here, he says, verse 9, but When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you you spend some time reading that. That's an extra-biblical uh, uh, illustration from Jewish literature about this, about this interaction between the archangel Michael fighting over the body of Moses. You find that in Deuteronomy 34. The, the idea is that there's arrogance, there's unwillingness to submit to the Lord and his authority and his control. They speak of what they do not know. This is what we're called to contend for. Says they were destroyed. There's a similar passage in Second Peter. They were destroyed for their wickedness. Eleven through thirteen says Cain and Balaam and Korah, uh, of course, rebellion. All of those are Old Testament examples where people have. Uh, been discontent, dissatisfied in their situation. And so what have they done? Instead of what? What do you do when you're dissatisfied in your situation? What do you do when you don't like where you are? You don't like that you're single. You don't like that situation's going on. You don't like that you're sick. You don't like your job. What do you do? Do you bend and submit and trust and lean in the grace of God that he comes and cares? Or do we raise up in our hearts and we reject his authority. That's what they did. That's what the people of God, that's what the Old Testament is. God's faithfulness, his continual presence against rebellious, stubborn people who have believed lies and turned away. And that's true in the church today, right? We're always contending to hold to the truth, to stay the course. It says all of these would be judged for such rebellion. Finally, I'm just going to end here for time. Verse 12 says, "They are uh, these are hidden reefs. You know, ships come uh, come ashore and they're coming for safety in port, but you don't know. You can't see, right? Sometimes there's these great reefs. Right? Think about the Great Barrier Reef, Australia. Ships come in, they think they're coming, and then, right." The ship runs in, and it's just destroyed. Our faith, it looks like it's going well. It's going this good course, but we can't see. We're not aware. We're not alert. It's crept in. We're not paying attention. We've been lulled to sleep, and boom, our, our faith is shipwrecked and led astray. Concealed dangers, and the result is judgment. You yeah, know, this was not a real fun sermon to prepare, um, but it's a really needed sermon to prepare, particularly for a church like us who leans in the grace, right? I think we should. We should always lean in grace. If we don't know that we are sinners in need of grace every single moment, then we have missed something. But if we presume upon the grace, if we take for granted his grace, his goodness, then we've missed the heart of the word. It is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual world. History is chock full of rebellion and resistance to King Jesus. If we want to be the people of God on mission, we have to find ourselves submitting our hearts, our lives, our bodies, our wills, even in places we don't want. That's what submission means. It's easy to submit when you agree with it. It's not submission, that's agreement. Celebration. To smit when our hearts don't want to and trust that God is a good God, has a good plan and a good purpose for us as the people of God. How do we do that? We do that with uh, one message. We make the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is our faith and hope rest in the death. And resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us. When that fails to be the main thing, and then yeah, there are implications, everything's extrapolated from that main thing. But we don't—we move the main thing from the heart. We'll find ourselves carried away, shipwrecked, our faith perverted for various things. Let's contend well. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for this faith you've delivered to us a faith that is rich and robust and solid and thorough and um, attacked every day and in so many different ways. It's unpopular outside the church. It's unpopular inside the church. We would rather sing about uh, all the blessings that we receive in Christ, which they are innumerable, and yet we need to know that we are in a war. We are in a battle. God protect us, keep us. May we be found faithful. May we be a church that is that loves grace, that welcomes any and all to come, and yet holds fast to the truth because it is our only hope and salvation. May that be so. We pray in your name, Amen. Would you please rise as we recite together the faith laid out in this early church creed called the Apostles' Creed. We'll say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the Lord's Supper, which we, we do weekly, there's one little little nugget there, he says, and uh, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Long ago were designated. Man, that's a, what's that mean? We get caught off guard by false teaching. We're surprised. Like, oh, we didn't know that was there. And we find ourselves being pulled astray. Like, oh no, God's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. New iterations, if you look through the history of heresies, they just kind of recycle in different ways. It's the same, same, you know, same song, new verse. God's not caught off guard. And so he gives us something that protects us, that we hold to, and that is that we continually tell each other, we hold fast to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It anchors us. It seals us. That's what the sacraments are. They're a sign. It points us so every week we can say, see, see it again, death, resurrection, death, resurrection. And it seals our faith. It comes with authority. He has commanded it. He has given it. As often as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we hold fast to his, hold fast to his death in remembrance of him. It's a sign and a seal. It grounds us. It binds us. So we can't get away from the word and sacrament because it's what holds us. We get away from that, we, get, we become untethered, right? We get drift at sea. And so we come and we eat this meal. We don't do it just as, as a mere symbol. That's a neat little thing we do. We do it because it holds us to Jesus. and He holds us in the sacraments. He is king, he is Lord, and he was with the disciples on the night before he would give his body. and cup he is the new covenant. It's the new relationship forged in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. As so often as we drink this cup and we eat this bread, we proclaim the message of death and resurrection until he comes again. Let's eat tonight with faith and courage and that story that keeps us and binds us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these elements. They're common, they're simple, they're bread and wine. We we eat them regularly, and yet we eat them afresh here, pointing us and telling us of the good news and the grace that you've given us.